If you have a Bible, would you open to Revelation chapter 3? Coming to the second to last letter from the risen Son of Man to the seven churches of Asia Minor. We come now this morning to the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In two weeks, we will leave behind this familiar section of Scripture and we will embark upon a journey through the main body of the book of Revelation. From Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 to Revelation 22 and verse 5, we will find a mysterious and majestic series of visions, each of which are marked off by John's repeated refrain, and then I looked, or and then I saw. And these visions revealed to the Apostle John by means of graphic, apocalyptic symbolism, the tribulation of the last days. They describe the time between the first and second coming of Christ, the days of war between the dragon and the saints of the Most High. And standing at the front of these apocalyptic visions are seven letters from the risen and exalted Son of Man to the seven leading churches of Asia Minor. These seven churches were real churches filled with real people enduring real tribulation at the end of the first century, but at the same time, they are representative of the church living in the last days. In these letters, we are provided a glimpse into how the tribulation affected each church, and we can read the evaluations from the Lord of the church as to how they fared. And as we have seen, and as we shall see, some fared better than others, and some fared not at all. Jesus closes each letter with this statement, he who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, indicating that these letters are not intended for one 
particular congregation only. This letter is not intended only for the church at Philadelphia living at the end of the first century, but rather these are messages from the living and exalted Christ by the Holy Spirit to every church living in these last days. They are letters to us And over the last five weeks, this week and next week, we have been receiving them as such. We have been praying and asking that the Spirit would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to us, to the church of Jesus Christ living in the days of tribulation. So our task has been and is, before we proceed into the visions of Revelation, to examine each church, to observe the nature of the tribulation that they face, and to look at the successes and the failures of each church in facing tribulation in order that we might learn how to remain faithful in the tribulation that we face and will face. So for instance, just track down with me beginning at the start of chapter 2. From the church in Ephesus, we learn that while it is important to hold tenaciously to the doctrines of the faith, all of our doctrinal knowledge and doctrinal precision is in vain if we have not love. A doctrinally sound church that is not also a missionally vibrant church will soon be a dry and dead church. And we took that to heart. From the church in Smyrna, we learned that persecution, whether it be in the form of slander or imprisonment or even death, are realities for the church in this age of tribulation. But that the crown of life belongs to those and only those who remain faithful unto death. We took that to heart. From the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira, we learn that Satan not only attacks his church from without by means of external persecution, but he also seeks to infiltrate his church and destroy it from within by means of false teachers spreading false doctrines. Therefore, if the church, us, are to endure in these days of tribulation, we must be vigilant and exercise the keys of the kingdom through the faithful practice of biblical church membership and biblical church discipline. From the church at Sardis, We learn that a church can be dead even if it appears to be alive. If it's lost its conviction and stained its character and abandoned its confession. But we also learn that Jesus can revive such churches calling forth life out of that which was dead. Next week, we'll learn from the church at Laodicea that you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both Christ and comfort. But this week, This week we have the privilege of observing a church that was enduring. A church that was persevering through the tribulation. A church that was overcoming Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and because they did not love their lives even when faced with death. The church of Philadelphia is one of only two churches which receives no rebuke and no threat from Christ. Only warm encouragement, and stunning promises. What we have here is a glimpse of a church in which Jesus delighted. A church in which Jesus took pleasure. A church that brought a smile to his face and joy to his heart. And we want the same to be true of us, do we not? 
When Jesus, from his throne at the right hand of the Father, thinks of First Baptist Nixa, we want him to smile. If he were to write a letter to First Baptist Nixa, we would want it to look something like this. You've held fast my word and you have not denied my name and I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. We want that here. We want to be found faithful in this age of tribulation. And so I invite you to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, what the Spirit says to First Baptist Nixa this morning. In order that we may be strong and steadfast like the saints at Philadelphia. So we begin in verse 7 with the self-designation of the risen Lord Jesus, who is the rewarder of the faithful. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The city of Philadelphia is not located in eastern Pennsylvania. It was actually located some 30 miles southeast of Sardis in western Asia Minor in what is modern-day Turkey. It was a major commercial center in Asia Minor. It was situated at the confluence of a number of important trade routes. Industry and agriculture dominated the local economy. And the region boasted a number of vineyards, and so not surprisingly, Dionysus, who is the god of wine, was the chief pagan deity of the city. The most notable thing about the ancient city of Philadelphia, Philadelphia is that it was devastated by a catastrophic earthquake in A.D. 17. The destruction was so complete that a number of ancient historians write of the fact, even those who were not from the region, one even writing that Philadelphia was ever subject to the danger of earthquakes. And to this church in Philadelphia, Jesus introduces himself by means of three interrelated self-designations. These three descriptions are related in that they all flow from a background in the prophet Isaiah. One of Isaiah's favorite titles, you go back and you read the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah, and you will find that over and over again, some 20 times, he refers to the Lord Yahweh, the, the covenant God of Israel, as the Holy One of Israel. Well, that Jesus here refers to himself as the Holy One is a clear indication that Jesus equates himself with Yahweh, the covenant God of Old Testament Israel. And that he identifies himself as the true one is an allusion to his identity as the true Messiah, even though he was rejected as such by those who say they are Jews and are not. You look down at chapter 3 and verse 9. So Jesus identifies himself to the saints who would have been both Jew and Gentile in the city of Philadelphia, the saints in the church at Philadelphia, as the true Holy One of the true Israel, which as we shall see, is the New Covenant Church. Well, that we're on the right track is confirmed then by the last phrase, or the last two phrases that Jesus uses to identify Himself. These are a quote from Isaiah 22, 22. 
a promise from God to a man named Eliakim, who was the son of Hilkiah. The background of this promise comes from 8th century B.C. Judah, which was the southern kingdom, and from the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Evidently, Hezekiah had a steward. A steward is like a prime minister, second in command, chief administrator of the kingdom. He had a steward named Shebna, who had grown arrogant and self-important, and because of some sin, had brought great shame upon the house of David. You can read about it in Isaiah 22, 15 to 19. And it was because of this great sin and this great shame that the Lord God had judged Shebna. Isaiah 22, verse 17, Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you, I love this, and will whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die. And there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. Well, in his place, God raised up a man named Eliakim, whom he calls his faithful servant. And he says to Eliakim, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe. And I will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Eliakim would thus possess tremendous authority over Israel. He possessed the keys of the kingdom, so to speak. And as steward of the kingdom of Israel, he determined who would enter into the palace of the king, and he would exercise tremendous influence over decisions that were made in the kingdom. And God says that unlike Shebna, the steward before him, Eliakim would wield this power for the good of his people. Well, clearly, Eliakim functions as an Old Testament type of Christ, who is the true and holy one of Israel. He who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. In other words, just as Eliakim ruled over Israel in righteousness in the days of Hezekiah, so Christ now rules over the church, which is the true Israel. And just as Eliakim once possessed the keys of the kingdom, determining who entered within the gates of the kingdom, so Jesus now possesses the keys of the house of David, the keys of the messianic kingdom, and it is Jesus alone who determines who enters and who does not enter. In other words, Jesus is claiming for himself absolute authority over salvation and judgment, Absolute authority over who enters into the gates of God's everlasting kingdom. When Jesus opens the gates of the kingdom of God, none can shut them. And when Jesus shuts the gates of the kingdom of God, none can open. And as we see, Jesus had flung the gates wide open for the faithful saints of Philadelphia. Well, from this self 
designation of Jesus, the rewarder of the faithful, we're going to turn our attention now to his description of the saints at Philadelphia. We'll see the description of the faithful. And there are three important characteristics that describe the Philadelphian saints. Number one, they were a small church. Jesus says to them in verse 8, I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, most scholars will agree that this is a reference to the small size of the congregation. Okay, the church of Philadelphia did not have many members, and those members they did have were likely drawn from the poorer and lower socioeconomic strata of society. In other words, this was a church that was small and insignificant in the eyes of the world. But according to Jesus, they were strong in faith. Secondly, they were a biblical church. Twice, Jesus says, verse 8 and verse 10, you have kept my word. They knew the apostolic faith. They cherished the word of God and they held fast to the truth of Scripture. And they withstood the relentless assault of false teaching that was afflicting all of the other churches of Asia Minor. And thirdly, they were a persevering church, even though they were also a persecuted church. Jesus says of them in verse 8, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And then in verse 10, you have kept my word about patient endurance. And in between those two descriptions of their faithfulness to his word and their perseverance and their confession and their endurance, we find a description of persecution. Persecution by the local synagogue of Satan. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. And in addition to the persecution from the local synagogue, it is doubtless that they also faced pressure from the ordinary citizens of Philadelphia and from the officials of the state to conform to the pagan practices that formed the very fabric of society in which they lived. In other words, things were not easier for the church at Philadelphia than they were for Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea. They faced the wrath of the beast. They faced the deceptions of the false prophet. They faced the seductions of the prostitute of Babylon. But in the midst of all of these assaults, they held fast to the word of Christ and they did not deny his name. And it was for that reason that Jesus delighted in them. Because they were faithful. See, the church at Philadelphia combined the very best of every other church and remained faithful where the other churches, with the exception of the church at Smyrna, had failed. Like the church in Ephesus, they kept the word of Christ. They held fast to the doctrines of the faith. I mean, they were theologically adept and precise. They loved the word. They desired the word. They studied the word. But they had not left their first love. They combined doctrine with passion. They continued to shine the light of Christ into the darkness. How do we know? If they hadn't, Jesus would have threatened to come and remove their lampstand like he did the church at Ephesus. Like the church at Pergamum, they held fast to the name of Christ and they they did not deny his faith even under persecution. 
But they had not allowed the heresy of the Nicolaitans to take root like the church at Pergamum had. How do we know? If they had, Jesus would have threatened to come and make war on them also. Like the church in Thyatira, they were continuing in love and faith and service and perseverance. But they had not tolerated false prophets and false believers in their midst. Like the saints at Thyatira had. How do we know? If they had, Jesus would have threatened to strike their children dead. You see where I'm going? They reflected the good aspects of all of the other churches and had succeeded where all of the other churches had failed. This is the church to imitate. This is the faithful church that we ought to hold up and say, we want to be like them. The saints in Philadelphia weren't perfect, but they were faithful. And they were faithful, watch this, even though they were small. And therein lies a very important point for First Baptist Nixa to grasp hold of. The size of the church is no indicator of God's pleasure. Jesus is far more interested that a church be faithful than that it be large. We're coming out of a generation of American Christianity which was obsessed, there's no other word for it, was obsessed with church growth. The era of the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s was the age of the megachurch in which it seemed to everybody as if bigger was always better. So small churches always looked at bigger churches, saw what they were doing, and did likewise in hopes that they could become big churches like the big churches. You got a small church that really has no need of a multi-purpose building? What do you do? You build a multi-purpose building. Why on earth would you do that? Because big churches do. But it's not always the case that bigger is better. I spent my seminary days living in, in Memphis, which is the land of the Baptist megachurch. I mean, they're everywhere, on every corner. But the closer that I examined beneath the glitzy, polished, oversized veneer, the more I became convinced that these 5,000, 10,000, 32,000 member churches were not actually faithful New Testament congregations. And this is problematic because other churches look to those mega churches for their church growth strategies in an attempt to become large like them. In other words, the mega churches were the prototype for all the other churches that they sought to imitate. And it didn't seem to me anyway that anybody was asking the question, is the gospel faithfully preached in that church? Is the word faithfully taught? Do the shepherds actually know their sheep? Do the sheep actually know and have access to the shepherds? Does the church actually exercise the keys of the kingdom? Through the practice of biblical church membership, do they practice biblical church discipline? 
And the answer to that is obviously no, or else they wouldn't have an attendance of 32,000, or a membership of 32,000 and an attendance somewhere around eight. If I were one of those 32,000 members of the church across the street from where we live for about two and a half years, could I read my New Testament and the descriptions of the local churches in the New Testament and in any way, shape, or form relate to their practice and experience? And if the answer is no, am I even a part of a New Testament church? Beloved, numeric growth must not be and will not be the goal of First Baptist Nixa. Faithfulness will be the goal. Faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to His Word, faithfulness to His Gospel, faithfulness to His name. When Jesus thinks of First Baptist Nixa, by His grace He will say, you held fast my word and you have not denied my name. Faithfulness to the mission, the mission of making not merely converts, but Christians, not merely decisions that we can turn in so that I can get elected to the state convention, but disciples. We are after the making of lifelong disciples of Jesus Christ who persevere through the tribulation of this life, and enter into glory by faith. Jesus promised Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus will build his church, and he will do so upon the foundation the rock of the apostolic faith, namely his gospel, the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and the Son of God. Faithfulness to that rock, that foundation upon which Jesus will build his church, that is our aim. Our aim is faithfulness to the foundation, to the rock to the word of Christ, proclaiming that word, teaching that word, believing that word, applying that word, obeying that word, praying that word, sharing that word. That's our aim. If we are faithful to Christ, faithful to his word, he may grow us, and we pray that he will. We're not not against growth. We're for growth. But the rallying cry of First Baptist Nixa is not going to be growth at any cost. Our battle cry will be faithfulness at any cost. Jesus did not condemn the church at Philadelphia for having little power, did he? For being small and insignificant in the eyes of the world. He delighted in them. And what aim could we possibly have that would be higher and greater than to bring pleasure to the Son of God? So let's check our motives and our goals before we move on. 
Let's check our motives and our goals, even as Jesus appears to be blessing our church with numeric growth. The question is, whose kingdom are we building? Whose glory are we seeking? See, we can either expend our energies and our resources building our own little kingdom, that is First Baptist Nixa, you know, erecting a temple to our own greatness and grandeur and glory, or we can seek first the kingdom of God and be a pillar in His temple. But you cannot do both. I would rather be the church in Philadelphia which had little power but was a delight to Christ than to be the church at Laodicea that we'll see next week was rich and prosperous and self-sufficient but which made Jesus so nauseous that he wanted to vomit them out of his mouth. Well, finally this morning, we're going to examine the reward of the faithful. In this passage, Jesus makes four promises of reward to the faithful saints of Philadelphia. First, he promises them an open door. Jesus says in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Many interpret this as a promise of evangelistic opportunity and effective ministry of the gospel. Uh, The reason they do so is because Paul often used the phrase an open door to refer to that. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul writes to the church at Corinth of a wide door of effective ministry that has been opened for me in Ephesus. Does the same thing in Acts 14, 2 Corinthians 2, and Colossians 4. So there's some merit to that view, and that may be be involved here, but I don't think that's primarily what Jesus means. This is a reference to what he had said earlier when he quotes from Isaiah 22, 22, saying that he has the key of David, that he opens and no one will shut, and he shuts and no one opens which is a reference to Jesus having the key to the gate of the messianic kingdom of God. He allows entrance to anyone that he pleases. So in the very next verse, verse 8, Jesus is promising to the saints of Philadelphia, I am pleased to open the gates of the kingdom to you. And when I open the gates of the kingdom to you, no one will be able to shut them. Why? Because you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. To them, Jesus had opened the door of eternal life. And this church, which had but little power in the eyes of the kingdom of this world, was going to inherit the everlasting kingdom of God. So he's placed before them an open door. Secondly, he promises them public vindication in the sight of the Jews who were persecuting them. Verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Well, as in the letter to the church at Smyrna, you remember up in chapter 2 and verse 9? Once again, we get a glimpse of this antagonism that existed between the local Jewish synagogue and the local Christian church in Philadelphia. 
Everywhere that the gospel went in the first century, it encountered opposition from the unbelieving Jews who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah and had rejected his followers as blasphemers and heretics. Just read the book of Acts. You'll see it happen in every city to which Paul goes. But while the local Jewish synagogue was opposed to the Christian church and so slandered and persecuted them at every turn, evidently the risen Lord Jesus was opposed to them, calling them a synagogue of Satan and denying that they were in fact true Jews. Now, Jesus is not denying their ethnic descent from Abraham. He's not denying their bloodlines. He's not denying that they are ethnically Jewish. But he is denying that they are the true Israel of God. The true descendants of Abraham by faith. Saying the same thing that Paul said in Romans 9 verses 6 through 8. Or towards the end of Galatians chapter 3. He's saying that they are not the true heirs of the promise made to Abraham. All of those distinctions belong to the church. To all those, both Jew and Gentile, who are united to Christ by faith. The church is the true Israel. The church are the true children of Abraham. And the church are the true heirs of God's promises to Abraham. And it is the church that Jesus loves. While the Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia may deny then that Jesus was the Messiah and his followers were the people of God, Jesus promises that there will come a day when those Philadelphian saints will be publicly vindicated in the sight of all creation. He says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Which is another quotation from the prophet Isaiah 45, 14. Which was a promise, it's really interesting. Follow, follow me with this. This was a promise made from God to Israel. A promise that the Gentiles, the nations, would come and bow down at the feet of Israel and confess God's grace and presence among them. That's what Isaiah promised. So do you see what Jesus is doing by taking Isaiah 45, 14 and now applying it to the church? It's astounding. And it's quite instructive for our understanding of the relationship between Israel and the church with regard to God's purpose and promise of redemption. A subject which, by the way, has engendered no small debate in today's church. In this verse, Jesus takes a promise made to Old Covenant Israel and he applies it to the New Covenant church. And then he takes a reference to the Gentile nations and applies it to the Jewish synagogue. You see how he's taken it and he's flipped it on its head? The clear inference being that the church is the true Israel of God and it is the church that is the object of the love and grace of Christ and it is the church that are the heirs of the everlasting kingdom. And the promise of verse 9 is that Jesus at that last day when the sons of God are revealed, he will bring this synagogue of Satan and every 
other unbeliever who has opposed the church of Jesus Christ and he will bring them to bow down and they will confess not only that Jesus is Lord, but that we are the people whom he loves and in whom he delights. Third, okay, an open door, public vindication. Third, Jesus promises the church in Philadelphia preserving grace. For the coming trial. Preserving grace. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial. That is coming on the whole world. To try those who dwell upon the earth. This verse could occupy our whole time this morning. It's not going to. But it could. And it would be kind of fun. uh, Because there's a lot of debate surrounding this verse. What does Jesus mean by the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world? And what does it mean for the saints to be kept from it? Those are the two questions around which people often disagree. Over the past century or so, it has been popular to view this promise as evidence of a future seven-year tribulation from which believers will be rescued by what is called a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. I don't think that's what Jesus means. First of all, the the hour of tribulation or the hour of trial does not await some future seven-year period. Now, some 2,000 years after this letter was sent to the saints of Philadelphia. If that were the meaning of this verse, if Jesus writes to the Philadelphian saints in about 90 AD and says, hey, there's an hour of trial coming upon the earth 2,000 years from now, and I'm going to keep you from it. How does that comfort them in their current persecution and tribulation? It doesn't. And one of our principles of interpretation is that a text can't mean to us what it didn't mean to them, and it didn't mean that to them. Rather, the tribulation encompasses, as we have seen and will see again, the entire time between the first and second comings of Christ, which is why, just let your eyes scan up back to Revelation 1-9, which is why John identifies himself to these Asian congregations as a fellow partaker in the tribulation. He's in it. They're in it. We're in it. Every church has been in it since Christ ascended and will be in it until Christ descends. This is the hour of trial. Which begs the question then, what does it mean that they're going to be kept from it? Well, believers are not removed from tribulation. Rather, they are preserved through tribulation. Why would I say that? Well, I've got about 15 reasons, of which I'll give you one this morning. In John 17, 15, you want to write that out to the side, maybe in your margin or whatever. In John 17, 15, which is the only other place that this particular Greek phrase is used, keep from, tereo ek, the only other place in the entire New Testament where that phrase is used is in John 17, 15, which is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus prays, the only other time he uses this phrase in the entire Bible. He prays to the Father regarding you. I do not ask you 
to take them out of the world. But I ask you to keep them from the evil one. Do you see what he says? I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but rather while they are in the world, I ask you to keep them from the evil one. In other words, Jesus' plan is not and has never been and never will be to remove his saints from this world in which he promises, John 16, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation, but do not fear, I have overcome the world. And I've prayed for you, praying not that you would be removed from the world, whisked away in a rapture, but rather that you would be protected from the evil one in the world. He's praying the same thing that he prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us not into temptation, but, or lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So how does Jesus keep his church from the hour of trial that is coming upon the world to test those who are upon the earth? He does it in this way. He does it by keeping us from the evil one. By sealing us and spiritually protecting us from the judgment and wrath of God which will be poured upon the wicked of the earth during this period. In Revelation 7, verses 2 and 3, you see something really interesting. You see the angels who are coming to dispense the judgment, and God tells them, you dispense judgment, but you don't touch those who are sealed. Don't touch them. You see in Revelation 13 that the beast makes all those who are upon the earth bow down and worship his name, except those who are sealed. The name of God on their forehead. Jesus keeps his people from the hour of trial by preserving us in faith through this age of tribulation, keeping us faithful to the very end. The saints overcome the evil one in the hour of trial, not by being raptured out of the world, but by remaining faithful in it by God's power and preserving grace. That's why it said, and they conquered him. How? They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their lives even unto the death. We don't overcome by being whisked away. We overcome by dying in faith. Verse 11, Jesus promises, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And verses 10 and 11 function together to give us this balanced biblical view of perseverance and eternal security. Look at verse 10. Because we keep his word and persevere in faith, Jesus keeps us or protects us from the hour of trial. This does not mean that he will remove us from the tribulation or prevent us from suffering, but rather that he will keep us and seal us so that the trial, which is designed to test those who dwell upon the earth, that trial will not be for us the revelation of our faithlessness, but rather will be the revelation of our faithfulness as our faith, which is refined by fire, is found to be more valuable than gold at the revelation of the power and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must continue to hold fast what we have until he comes so that no one will seize 
the victor's crown so that you will have something to cast at the feet of Jesus. We persevere in faith. Here's the biblical doctrine of perseverance in two statements. We persevere in faith because He preserves us in grace. And He preserves us in grace as we persevere in faith. Fourth, Jesus promises the Philadelphian saints eternal fellowship with God. Verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. These four promises are really one tremendous promise. This small, struggling, insignificant saint of Philadelphia who overcomes, will be a pillar in the temple of God, never to depart out of it. The name of God shall be on his forehead. He will be a citizen of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven. Wait for Revelation 21 and we'll deal with that. That place where the people of God dwell eternally in the presence of God. And finally, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will write on him his own new name denoting deep fellowship and intimacy with Christ. I don't know everything that those four promises entail. But we're going to unwrap them over the course of our study of Revelation. And I know this, they're supremely glorious. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What has the Spirit said? He has said that faithfulness has great reward. Beloved, your aim in this world is not to be great and mighty in the eyes of this world. That's not your goal. Your aim is to be faithful. Your aim is that it would be said of you on the last day, he held fast my word. She held fast my word. And they have not denied my name. That is it. That's faithfulness. That is greatness in the eyes of Christ. And the good news is, any one of you can be great in the eyes of Christ. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what your profession is. Doesn't matter what size house you live in. Doesn't matter what your color is, what your ethnicity is, what your cultural background is. If you want to be great in the eyes of Christ and be a temple or a pillar in the temple of his God, you just hold fast his word and don't deny his name. Keep his word and confess his name. And if you do, he will throw open the gates of the kingdom and welcome you in. He will vindicate you publicly and everyone will know that he has loved you. He will preserve you through the hour of trial such that you will emerge victorious, refined as by fire with a faith found more precious than gold. And he will grant you eternal fellowship with himself and with his father such that you will stand in his temple, dwell in his city, and be known forever by his name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. First Baptist Nixa. Our Father, I pray that you would find us faithful as a church 
as individual believers, as fathers, mothers, I pray that you would find us faithful. And I pray that you would preserve us in faith to the very end. Every one of us here struggles with the desire to be great in the eyes of the world. I do. That's not the aim. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and break, break that aim and remove it from our hearts so that our hearts would cry out, Lord, I want to be faithful. I want to be great in your eyes. I want to hold fast to your word and I want to confess your name. I want to be faithful. Father, keep us faithful in the hour of trial. I ask this in Jesus' name.